invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 36. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. Uh, Scott has been preaching through Romans for some time now and done a great job, so leaning heavily on what he said before, uh, I'm going to try to pick up where he's left off. Uh, And as you might have noticed, uh, getting somewhere around uh, chapter 9 in the book of Romans, uh, things can start to get a little bit difficult. We we start talking about God's sovereignty in our salvation, uh, but also how we're still responsible. And sometimes it can be uh, a little bit of a complex argument and also a little bit hard to swallow. Uh, But, you know, one thing that I've believed believed that I've experienced in my life is that uh, sometimes the best way for me to grow in my faith is for me to take passages of Scripture that I have a hard time understanding. Are we okay? All right. Passages of Scripture that I find difficult to understand, that are maybe they're because they're complex, or maybe it's just something that's hard to swallow, and try to wrestle with that and pray through that. And a lot of times I find even if I don't understand it any better, even if I still have difficulties with it, my faith has been encouraged, and my faith has been strengthened, and I have more trust in God. So... Uh, I pray that's what will happen with you today, even if this is complex, even if it's hard to swallow in some ways, that you will be encouraged by wrestling with God's Word and wrestling with uh, what is a little bit of some difficult truth in God's Word. Uh, So with that in mind, let me pray for us, and then I will read our scripture. Father in heaven, would you be near to us right now? Would you give us eyes to see the riches of your Word? Uh, Father, would you show us Christ, and would you encourage us from your Word? Help us with humble hearts to receive it. Uh, Prepare my heart. Help me to make it plain. And help me to preach truly your word. And I pray that we will see Jesus and him only. Our hearts would be encouraged and you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. It's Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy of God shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Most of you are probably familiar with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. And the parable that Jesus tells is uh, is a picture of a Pharisee, okay, who is uh, known to be very religious but often self-righteous, And a tax collector, okay, so he's the opposite. He's not religious at all. He's very ungodly. And they're both in the temple praying. And Jesus compares their prayers to see who goes home justified. And so he looks at the the prayer of the Pharisee. 
And he sees how the Pharisee calls attention to himself. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I, I thank you that I'm better, I'm superior to this tax collector. And then he goes on with his prayer. Uh, but the tax collector stands in the back. He kneels down. He won't even look up to heaven, it says. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we learn from that. We see the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, the self-righteousness of those who are often very religious, and the humility of those who know that they're sinners, who know that they've broken the rules, who know that they deserve God's wrath. Uh, there was a seminary professor of mine who liked to turn this around on things to talk about how those who were once humble can become the self-righteous. He says, did you hear about the Pharisee, or did you hear about the tax collector that said, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee? Did y'all catch that? Did you hear about the tax collector who is supposed to be this humble and contrite man who said, God, thank you that I'm, I'm not like that Pharisee. I'm not self-righteous like he is. And of course, when he prays that, he's become self-righteous, right? It, it turns the whole thing around. Uh, that's kind of a picture of what was going on in the church in Romans, I think. Uh, the Gentiles uh, in this church in Rome knew that God was being gracious to them. They saw Gentiles coming to Christ in large numbers. God seemed to be saving more Gentiles than Jews at the time for whatever reason. And so Paul has to start addressing their pride. They had started believing in their own superiority. The ones who you would think would know their distance from God, the ones who would think would know how far they were from the God of Israel, have now come and said, okay, we're God's favorites. And he looks down on you Jews, and we're really better than you. They're like that tax collector praying, saying, God, thank you that I'm not like those Pharisees. They're the Gentiles saying, God, thank you that we're not ungodly like those Jews. It's really a reversal of the situation. And so Paul starts addressing that, and it's a good lesson that we can learn. It's, it's kind of easy for us to do the same thing, right? Uh, it seems like it's kind of come in style in the last few years uh, to point your finger at the self-righteous, point your finger at those who have strong convictions and say, you're wrong, and I thank God that I'm not like you. Uh, th- this, we see this in our broader culture, and maybe even happens in us. Maybe we know those who are self-righteous, and we thank God, thank you that I'm not self-righteous. And we've just done the same thing, right? Uh, that's what Paul is addressing here. And so, you know, I think this, the reason we have this, the reason that we even boast in our humility, the reason that we feel pride in the fact that we're so humble, is that It's part of our fallen condition. It's part of sinful human nature to believe that we are better than most everybody else. Okay, in one way or another, we tend to believe that we are superior, maybe not to everybody, okay, maybe we recognize that there are some people who are definitely superior to us, but overall, we like to believe that we're better than about at least 51% of people, right? We're in the top half, at least. We are better than average. We love to believe this. It's part of our fallen human nature. Uh whether it's about um, the, work, the kind of work we do and the job we have and our work performance, whether it's about the way we raise our kids, whether it's about the moral stances we take and our lifestyle we live, uh, whether it's about who's most athletic or who makes the best grades or who's the coolest, uh, we tend to believe that we're in the upper half. We're better than most people. And in regards to our salvation, even when we acknowledge that our salvation is all of grace, we still tend to do this. Even when we say we're saved by God's mercy alone, we still sometimes tend to feel, okay, really the reason I'm saved is because I'm not as foolish as most people. I know how to make better decisions. Or I have a stronger moral compass than most people. And I just wouldn't do those, the things those sinners are doing. And we believe that's why God loves us and accepts us and saves us. Okay, even though we say we believe in grace alone, it's hard for us to actually believe that. 
It's hard for us to not believe that we're superior, at least in some way, right? There's something that sets us apart. And so Paul addresses this issue. He says to these proud Gentiles, and what he's saying to us is this. God didn't save you because you're so wise. You're not smarter than most people. And he didn't save you because you're so good. You're not better than most people. He saved you because it is part of his infinitely wise and infinitely merciful plan. And so since that's true, since we're saved by God's infinitely wise and merciful plan, he deserves all the praise. Okay, so let's look at that. First of all, let's think about this. God doesn't save us because we're so wise, but because of his wise and merciful plan. Uh, Look at God's plan that Paul describes here in verses 25, uh, especially looking 25, 28, and 30. Uh, first of all, he talks about uh, the mystery. When Paul, he's saying, I want you to understand these, this mystery, brothers. Okay, he's not talking about something that's kind of veiled and esoteric. He's talking about something, this is what God has revealed. It was hidden before, and now he's revealed it. This is his plan. In verse 25, he says, A partial hardening has come upon, in, has come upon the Gentiles. A par- excuse me. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so that's God's plan. He's going to partially harden Israel so he can bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, Look at verses 28, verse 28 as well. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Okay, so Paul is telling these Gentile believers, these non-Jews, God has made the Jews enemies of the gospel for your sake. Somehow, in God's wisdom, he has made them enemies of the gospel, and it's for your salvation, it's for your sake. And look at verse 30. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so the Jews' disobedience in God's plan uh, led to you receiving mercy, uh, now also they will receive mercy because of the mercy shown to you. So do you see that? In all three verses, Paul talks about there's this hardening of Israel. Their disobedience has been for the purpose of God showing mercy to you. And so we see uh, how this leads to salvation for the Gentiles. Because that would be the question, right? When, t- when Paul talks about him hard- God hardening Israel for the purpose of the Gentile salvation, well, how does that work out? Well, first of all, there's a practical reason. The Jews were the ones who opposed Christ, right? They were the ones who ultimately brought Christ up on charges and had him crucified. So that's one way that God's, the disobedience of the Jews led to salvation for the world, is that God hardened the Jews because it was his plan for Jesus Christ to be crucified. There's also the Jews' opposition to the gospel, the opposition to the gospel from Israel. Uh, the persecution and spread of the gospel that was coming to, from Israel, that was coming from Jerusalem, led to the gospel being going out into the region around Jerusalem and ultimately out to all the world. So when, uh, when you read in Acts 7 through 9, and especially, verse, uh, especially chapter 8, uh, as the persecution ramps up from the Jews toward the Gentile believers, uh, or even towards the Jewish believers, the gospel starts spreading out from Jerusalem, out to the nations. Their opposition to the gospel led to the gospel being preached all throughout the world. Uh, and Paul's pattern in his own life, his pattern was to go first, whenever he came to a new city, he goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews. And when they start rejecting him, he'd go to the marketplace. He'd go to other ways. He'd start preaching to the Gentiles. So do you see the practical reasons? Their opposition to Christ and to the gospel of Christ led to the gospel spreading all throughout the world. That's how uh, the Jews' opposition, that's how their disobedience was leading to salvation for the Gentiles. But it's really important to understand there's a supernatural reason, right? It's said in here, 
All this is from God's hand. Uh, this partial hardening has ha- come upon Israel. It, it's as if it's happened to them. It's come from God's hand. God has hardened Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, for the sake of his gospel being spread all throughout the world. Okay, that's kind of hard to us to swallow, right? Why would God harden anybody? Why would he harden them to the gospel, especially those who had said he's, they're his people? And it's important for, to us to remember when we think that, that well, Israel's not without responsibility. Uh, in chapter 10, uh, it talks about at the end of chapter 10 about how God was holding out his hands to an obstinate and stubborn people. He was trying to love a people who just wouldn't be loved. Uh, and in verse 32 of this chapter, it says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Uh, it's really saying that God has imprisoned, he's enslaved those to disobedience who had already chosen disobedience. It's kind of like in Romans 1, if y'all can remember that far back, when Paul is talking about uh, the sins that the nations are committing and how they're going after all these idols. And what eventually happened is that God gave them over to their idols. That's kind of the same thing he's saying, he's saying here. He's consigned them to their disobedience. He's given them over to that disobedience so that he could use it, so that he could have mercy on more people. And so we see, why has God done this? God's plan has always been that the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. That's what he's talking about, what he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, God's plan in Genesis, when we look back to the start of the Bible, it was that he would have grace on all families of the earth. That's the promise he made to Abraham. Uh, when he's talking to Abraham, the head of the nation of Israel, the father of the nation of Israel, he said this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse. And pay attention to this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's always been God's plan to have mercy on all the earth. And in Revelation 7, we read about that too when we see God's gathering of his people, it pictures the coming of the new heavens and the earth and all who will be God's people in heaven. And it talks about those. Uh, it says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's plan for the nations, his plan for the whole earth, has always been to be merciful on all people, on all nations, on all languages. And he has done this in his wisdom by hardening the Jewish people. He hardens them to the gospel to accomplish this task. He hardens them to extend grace to others. Uh, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22 kind of like this. Uh, He tells a parable about a king who is uh, putting on a great wedding banquet for his son. Uh, And and so what happened in this banquet is that those who were invited, they were invited well in advance. And those who had been invited, when the day came, they refused to come. They said they had better things to do. And so what did the king do? He said, well, he sent out servants and said, go find people from wherever. Go out to the streets and the highways and find people. I have to have enough people here to celebrate this wedding banquet of my son. That's what God's doing here. I, I believe that's what Paul is talking about. The Jews have refused to come, so God used that refusal and hardened them even further so that the gospel and the invitation of his mercy would go out further and further to all the nations. And so do you see how God's wisdom and mercy are working together here? Uh, in mercy, God desired to bless all families of the earth, to save them from his wrath, and gather them to himself in Christ. And so in his wisdom, he used the hard-hearted unbelief of the Jewish people so that the gospel of Christ would spread more and more to non-Jews 
that they would hear and believe. This salvation of these Gentiles that Paul is writing to didn't come because they were so wise. It came because it was part of God's plan. And so that's why Paul says to them, I'm telling you this, lest you be wise in your own eyes. Okay, if you didn't get anything else before this, just hear this. Paul is telling them about God's plan so that they won't be wise in their own eyes. So that they won't think their salvation is because they have figured something out. That they have more spiritual understanding, and so God saved them. Uh, The Gentiles were saying what sets us apart, what sets us apart from these unbelieving Jews is that we just have it figured out. Paul's saying, no, that's not true. When you do that, you're trusting your own wisdom and not God's mercy. You're trusting your own wisdom and not God's grace. Paul is telling them that it is God's wise and merciful plan that saved you. Do, do you see that? The gospel has come to you because God has ordained it. It's in his hands. It all comes from him. Paul is trying to make the point, what sets you apart is God's grace alone, who sent his son for you and then calls the gospel to come to you through his infinitely wise and good providence and grants you faith to believe it. It's all from his hand, so don't boast in your own wisdom. And so that's the same thing we need to hear. Our salvation is from God's hand. We can't boast in our own wisdom. We can't say that God has had mercy on us, that we've come to Christ, that we're part of his church, just because we have life figured out a little bit better, or just because we know how to make better decisions, or just because we're able to see the truth when we recognize it. Our salvation is completely from God's plan. It's completely because he has been gracious to us. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting God's grace or our own wisdom? Are we trusting that his grace has saved us, or do we think we're saved because we figured it out? Okay, here's a way to tell. Here's a way to tell if you're trusting your own wisdom or God's grace. Uh, If you're a believer, what sets you apart from unbelievers? What sets you apart from those who don't know Jesus? Okay, think about this. When you see the sin of unbelievers tearing their lives apart, and it always will. Sin will tear apart lives. And when you see the sin of unbelievers corrupting society, and it always will, it it brings corruption and devastation. But when you see that, what do you think? And what do you think about yourself compared to those sinners? What do you think about yourself compared to those unbelievers? Uh, Do you say, they're so foolish, they keep making bad choices, why can't they just understand? And do you think to yourself, I could really teach them a thing or two. If I could just sit down and have a conversation, I could straighten them out. Do you see how if you do that, you're really trusting your own wisdom? You're saying, if I could just pass along what I know, if they just knew what I knew, they wouldn't do this, and their sin wouldn't affect them so much? Do you see how you're really believing in your own superiority right there? We trust in our own superiority. When we look at others and look down on their sin, and we think, I would never do that. I'm smarter than that. I'm wiser than that it shows that we're starting to believe in our own superiority. And we need to repent. Uh, we need to think about, uh, think about this illustration. Thoughtfulness is sometimes the greatest indication of love, right? Uh, think about these two illustrations. Uh, first of all, think about a, a really good marriage proposal. Okay, what does a really good marriage proposal have? Well, most of the ones that are going to get a YouTube video or something like that, uh, they have this in common. They're really thought out. They're really well planned and well organized. Okay, and we always see that, and we're like, look how much this guy loves this girl. He went through so much trouble. He made such great plans to ask her to be his wife. He must really love her. So we see that, and we see all the plan that went into it, and we say, okay, that's amazing love. Or think about this. Uh, think about a surprise birthday party. Think about if you were the guest 
you are the surprised party. You, you are the one that's being surprised. And when you see that, you, you walk through the door of the house and everybody jumps out and you're so surprised. And what do you think? These people really love me. Look at all the trouble they went through. They confused me and maybe even lied to me so they could love me, so they could show their appreciation for me. And, and don't we see that and we say, man, they really love me. Well, look at this. God in his wisdom has laid plans, intricate plans, to show his people mercy. That's what Paul's saying. He planned the cross. He planned the spread of the gospel. And think about for us, he orchestrated 2,000 years of church history so that the gospel could come to us so that we could hear it and believe it here in Louisville, Mississippi. Look at God's plans to reach you. That's part of what Paul's saying here. And when we see that, when we see God's love, shouldn't we praise God? And shouldn't we see his superiority in that and not our own? When we see the intricacies of God's plan, when we see his wisdom working together with his mercy, shouldn't we praise his superiority and say, look at how much he loves me, instead of saying, I'm a little bit wiser than unbelievers, that's why God has saved me. God alone deserves all the praise. He's the one that's really superior, not us. So Paul is telling these Gentile believers, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you're just smarter than the Jews. Your salvation is part of God's plan. And so next, he's going to tell them, don't think that you're morally better than the Jews either. Uh, They aren't beyond God's mercy, and his plan still includes them too. So second thing, God doesn't save us because we're so good, but again, because of his wise and merciful plan. Paul tells them God still has plans for the nation of Israel. Though he's hardened them, he still has plans to show them mercy. Uh, Look with me uh, earlier in chapter 11. Paul has already talked about uh, the plan of God for Israel. God has hardened them, but it's not a full hardening, it's a partial hardening. And we see that because he saved a remnant. He hasn't hasn't hardened the whole nation. He's being faithful to them because he saved a small portion of them. So it's not a full hardening. And here he's going to talk about it's not a final hardening either. One day God is going to lift the hardening. He, he's made the Jews opposed to the gospel right now. But one day that's going to change. And he says that God has plans to pour out mercy on Israel again one day. And he talks about that in verses 25 and 26 and 27. When he talks about all Israel will be saved. Uh, let's just read it again real quick. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's saying, one day, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, after I'm satisfied with the number of Gentiles that I've brought to myself, the hardening of Israel is going to end. And he's going to turn and he's going to be merciful to them. He he talks about that. He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. Uh, The Deliverer will come from Zion and he's going to rescue them. And he's going to renew this covenant and take away their sins. And so God is actually carrying out that plan now, his plan to show mercy to the Jews. Uh, He says in verse 28, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake, but as regard to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God hasn't forgotten his promise to them. In verse 29, he reminds them the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God hasn't forgotten his promises. He hasn't forgotten his love to them. Uh, In verse 31, he talks about, again, the the Gentiles have received mercy... And he says this, In order that by the mercy shown you, they also may now receive mercy. God had hardened Israel to show the Gentiles mercy, but now he shows the Gentiles mercy so that he can show Israel mercy. And perhaps that's what he means in 11.11 when he says, uh, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous, so that Israel will see the mercy that's come to the Gentiles 
and be, be jealous and turn back to God. And so we read these verses and it's kind of, uh, I'll admit, it's a little bit hard to understand what exactly this means. Is it saying that the, all the nation of uh, Israel is going to come back to God one day? Well, I don't think it means every single person. Uh, but many people will take this to mean uh, that the time is going to come when God is satisfied with the number of Gentiles from all the earth who have come to Christ. And once that happened, the Jews, and not every single one, but corporately, in large numbers, maybe even a majority, will finally turn to Christ. And, and maybe it's going to be sometime just prior to his return. And so I think about that, and uh, I think, well, that's a pretty good reading of the text. I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like Paul is saying this big turn of Israel is going to come back one day. Even if you don't know the timeline and exactly what's going to happen, and even if you're confused right now, we can at least say this. God is not done with Israel, and they aren't beyond his grace, and they won't be hardened to the gospel forever. And so his point to the Gentiles was saying, don't be so arrogant and think that you're better with them, and think that they're beyond God's mercy. Uh, God's going to be merciful to them again, the same way he has been to you. Uh, again, in verse 32, it says, God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Uh, the word consigned to disobedience, that's, it's a Greek word that really means imprisoned. And so John Stott, uh, a commentator, says this about it. It says, disobedience is likened to a dungeon in which God has incarcerated all human beings so that they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy releases them. And Paul's saying, this is for Jews and Gentiles alike. You have no possibility of escape except that God's mercy release you. So he's saying, your only hope of getting out of the dungeon, the dungeon of your disobedience, is that God's mercy releases you, and that's their only hope too. It's the only hope for believers, and it's the only hope for unbelievers. Everyone is equally dependent on God's mercy. And just think about how that levels the playing field. We're all equally dependent on God's mercy. So he's saying, don't think that you're better than them. Don't think that you're better than them for two reasons. First of all, uh, your salvation depends on nothing but God's mercy, just like theirs. And second of all, God is going to show them mercy too. He wasn't merciful to you because you were more deserving. The fact is that he's going to be merciful to them too. The fact that he's going to save the Jews proves that you don't deserve their mercy anymore, that you don't deserve God's mercy any more than they do. So again, if you've heard nothing else, if you're confused by all that I've said, and you might be, uh, hear this. God has shown us mercy because he loves to show mercy, not because we're more deserving than anyone. God has shown us mercy just because he's merciful, not because we're great. God loves to show mercy, so he made plans to show mercy to all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, and that's why he saved us, because of his plans to show mercy to everyone. That's why he loves us, not because we're such good people, we're saved by his grace alone. Okay, so again, most of us would probably agree with that. We're saved by God's grace alone. But yet, it's actually really hard to believe in practical terms. Again, the same way I said before, if you want to, if you want to know if you're wise in your own eyes, compare, think about what sets you apart from unbelievers, well, do that again. If you want to judge uh, yourself to see if you're a little self-righteous and think you're better than others, uh, think about how you look at other people. Uh, do you believe... Who, or who do you believe is beyond God's grace? Who do you believe is irredeemable? Uh, who do you believe is so depraved and sinful that they can't come to Christ and that they never would? Uh, the Gentiles seem to be thinking that about the Jews. They're so hardened that they'll never come to Christ. God can't save them. And who do we think that about? 
maybe it's an individual who's really hardened to the gospel that we know. Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe it's a group of people who live a certain lifestyle or have certain religious or political convictions. But when we believe, when we do that, when we believe that certain people are so bad off that they will never be redeemed, aren't we also saying that we're good enough that we can be redeemed? And you see how we separated ourselves from the crowd a little bit there? We believe in our own superiority again. Something about us makes us a little more appealing or a little more enticing to God so he would want to save us. Paul is saying, that is not true. You're saved only by God's mercy. You're saved because God has a plan to be merciful to people because he loves to show mercy, not because of you're so great. And so we can even say, God was really merciful to me, but if he's going to save this person, that's going to be a miracle. Well, why do we not believe that our own salvation is a miracle? What makes us think that it was any easier for God to save us than to save anybody else? That's what Paul is saying to these Gentiles, and that's a good question for us to think about as well. So Paul clearly makes the point, you Gentiles that have accepted Christ, you are any better than those unbelieving Jews. You didn't trust Jesus because you're smarter or morally superior, but only because God's sovereign mercy and infinite wisdom. Okay, do you know what happens when we really start to believe this? When we really start to believe that we're saved because of God's greatness and not of our superiority? is that we can't help but to worship. That's what Paul does here at the conclusion. He notes that God alone deserves all the praise and honor. So very quickly, God alone deserves all praise and honor. Uh, The Gentiles were believing in their own wisdom. Paul praises God's wisdom. In verse uh, 33, he starts, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He's saying, Who can understand God's ways? They are perfect in every way. They're, they're unsearchable. You, you can't find a problem with them. They're inscrutable. And so he, he keeps praising, oh, the depths of the riches. He praises God's mercy as well. God is rich and generous. So the reason he's given to us is not because we're so deserving. The reason he's given this salvation to us is because he's so rich in mercy. Do you see how he's saying it's not because you're so good either? It's because God's so rich in mercy. And so Paul, instead of puffing them up and letting them believe in their own superiority, he shows them God's superiority. In verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? No one's as wise as God. No one is as great as God. No one can understand his mind. God alone is superior. You're not the superior ones. God is superior. Then he praises God's riches again. He says, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He says, You didn't give anything to God so that he would give back to you. You didn't have anything in you that made you more appealing than anybody else. God has given to you just because he's generous, not because he owed you anything or he was in your debt in any way. It's because he is generous and gracious. He, again, is the one who's really superior. Uh, A common thing that happens for children when they grow up and leave their house and have their own kids is they start praising their parents more. Uh, They start saying something like, "I I didn't realize everything you did for me. I'm sorry for the way I treated you. Thank you for how you love me. And see, what happens is when they grow up, they can start to see all that their parents did for them. And then they start to praise them. Well, the same thing happens to us. Once we start to see all that God has done for us, that we aren't really superior, that he has stooped down to us to save us, not because of anything to us, we can't help but to start to praise him because we see, look at all that he's done for me. He included me in his wise providence and his plan that the gospel would come to me and save me. He has poured out his mercy on me, not because I'm superior, but because he's superior. And that's really good news for us. 
That's really good news for us because that shows, tells us we don't have to have it all figured out. We're saved by God's wisdom. We don't have to willpower our way into the kingdom of God. We're saved by God's mercy. That's good news. That frees us from the need to be superior. When we believe in God's superiority, it frees us from the need to be better than other people. And So, conclusion, Paul could have simply said, you know, you're not as smart as you think you are, and you're not as good a person as you think you are. Get over yourself. He could have just written that instead of this. And I could have just said that. It would have been easier. Uh, but instead, he tells them about God's infinitely wise and merciful plan. He shows them God's superiority, and he does that because the only way we'll ever get over ourselves, the only way we'll stop believing in our own superiority is when we see God's, when we see how God is high and exalted above all, and we can start to praise him for that. That's the only time we'll be freed from the lie that we're better than most people, when we start to see how good God is, how wise he is, how full of mercy he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your kindness and your goodness. Thank you that you have saved us. Uh, Lord, help us to have hearts that praise you, that rejoice in your mercy and your wisdom towards us, and that are humble and that know that the only thing that sets us apart from anybody else is because you have been gracious. It's not because of anything in us. It's because of what you have done for us. We love you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.